0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Um, okay, if you want to grab your Bible, turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and then go ahead and mark, put, a, put something in Ephesians chapter 6. You're going to need to have uh, both of those two places open for easy access. 1 Timothy 3, Ephesians chapter 6. Um, it's been almost four years ago um, since a group of about 20 to 25 adults were uh, in a house and a uh, really small group in a, in a living room and asking God to do some really big things. And that was the start of Stonegate Church four years ago. Um, yeah, it, it's really wild for me to think about. And, uh, you know, I, I've, when, I, when I try to describe the last four years of my life, this is sometimes the way I describe it. I feel like I've been on the front row of— uh, you know, of the auditorium watching God's amazing grace play out in front of me. It has really been remarkable. And I think about those early days of us praying um, for our church family. And, you know, when I think about what we were praying back then, we have seen some of those things, God just blow the waters off of our, our uh, you know, the things that we were praying, come through in really remarkable ways. Others we're still waiting patiently for. But one of those today, one of those things that we prayed really early on, we get to celebrate... Um, part, kind of the first step of God's answer for that prayer. And that prayer was, was us praying and pleading with God to give our church good godly pastors. Good godly pastors. So today we get to recognize a couple of, of guys that God has called into that. And now let me just clarify this really important piece. In Acts twenty twenty eight. 28 uh, the Bible is really clear that the church doesn't make or select pastors or elders— God makes and selects pastors and elders. The church just recognizes them. So we are getting to celebrate God's amazing grace toward us much more than we're getting to celebrate something that we have done as a church. So today we get this incredible opportunity to to recognize some of how God has expressed his grace toward us. So the sermon today is going to come in two parts. The first part is we're going to talk a little bit about pastors and a church family like ours. And in the second part, we're going to spend some time talking to our dads in the room about pastors in the context of their home. So this is, this is where we're going. So part one, pastors and a church family. 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Paul says this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. So the first thing we've got to do, I want to try to answer two questions about um, elders or overseers. The first question is, what are they? What are elders or pastors? We've got to know that. If we're going to be recognizing that today, we better know what it exactly is that we're recognizing. So what are they? Let's start with the definition. Let me throw this definition out to maybe help us discern what is it that we're talking about. Elders are the group of rescued, qualified, and competent men— Who God is charged to shepherd the local church. Elders of the group of rescued, qualified, and competent men who God is charged to shepherd the local church. So in the Bible, the word elder, overseer, and pastor are all used interchangeably. And I can give you several references for that. Titus 1 is is a reference. Acts chapter 20, 1 Peter 5. You see all of those words expressed interchangeably to describe the the group of men who have been called by God, qualified, who are competent to shepherd the local church. So those are all used interchangeably. So if you grew up in a tradition that called them bishops, another word for overseers. If you grew up in a tradition that, that called them pastors, it, you know, all those would be biblical elders. All of those would be biblical words to express what the leaders, these, these qualified, competent men that God has charged to lead the local church. So, so all of those would be used interchangeably. Here's, talking about this definition, here's two kind of clarifying things. I just want to make sure it's clear for us. So I want to emphasize the word group first, that it's a group of men, not one man, a group of men. In the New Testament, what, the pattern that we see is a plurality of men who lead the church. And that is a safeguard for both the church and the pastors. To safeguard for everyone in the room to have a plurality of men leading. And again, I could give you several references here. We've spent time on this in the past. But Acts 14 Verse 23, Acts 20, verse 17, 1 Timothy 5, 17, James 5, 14, Philippians 1, 1 are all showing. When you read the New Testament, here's the pattern that you see in the New Testament churches. That there is a plurality of men leading. Okay, now, so let me just clarify this so so we're all, you know, seeing this accurately when we think about Stonegate. The, the, The leadership structure at Stonegate is not a pyramid with one person sitting at the top of that. The, the leadership structure at, Sh- at Stonegate is a round table with multiple qualified and competent men sitting around that table. Okay, so that, that's the leadership structure. It's a plurality of men. And here's the second part of that, is the pastors are qualified. So the word qualified, that's a really important idea, right? I mean, qualifications are a good thing. If you went to jump on an airplane tomorrow and uh, the pilot walked in and said, well, I read a book on it yesterday. I should be able to figure it out you're not getting on that plane, right? I mean, qualifications are a good thing, especially for pastors who in, who in large part, God has entrusted with trying to shepherd you to have an eternal mindset and an eternal view. There's a lot hanging in the balance of that. So qualifications are very important. And this is what Paul is outlining here in 1 Timothy 3. So let's just read through this together. Verse one, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, He desires a noble task. Two words there, let me point them out. Aspires. That part of the qualification for eldership is that something in you has been stirred up to want that. And I just want to say this over the men in the room. We are praying for more of you to have that sort of a burden and an angst in you. That sort of an ambition. Paul is saying here that that ambition to pastor and to elder, that is a good and noble ambition. Okay, now let me just kind of give the back end of that statement also. That needs to be a humble ambition. Just because you aspire to something doesn't mean that God has gifted you to that or called you to that. So it needs to be an open-handed, humble ambition. But I just want to just recognize that that ambition is good. That that is a noble ambition, a good thing to feel. And I pray that more of our guys would feel it. And then secondly, I want to point out this word, he. He desires a noble task. And this is in part why, and if you go back to read the end of First uh, Timothy chapter 2, th- this is in part why it is that we are, you know, we, we use that word a group of men. That we, this is the one role in the local church that we would say is reserved for men only. The, the one role. Okay, now we have spent a lot of time on this in the past, so this is not going to be a morning that we dig into this. But I want to maybe offer a few just quick thoughts that, that I hope will be helpful for those in the room that are working through this, this issue. The the first thought would be this, in saying that there is a role in the church that's reserved just for men, that is not in any way, shape, or form saying that that there is a difference in value between men and women. That we are all affirming that, that before Jesus and because of Jesus, men and women are both dear to God, precious in the sight of God, valuable to God. There is no difference in that. Okay, second clarifying thought would be this, that when we're talking about headship and submission, that those general ideas, that God's pattern that is grounded and rooted all the way back into Genesis 1 and 2 in creation, God's pattern of headship and submission in the home corresponds to and runs parallel to to leadership and followership in the church. So we're saying that 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 whole thing is not a cultural idea, it's rooted right in creation into Genesis 1 and 2. And then thirdly, I'd want to say this to our ladies in the room. We are very committed as a church to making sure that all of our ladies have a wide, wide lane of meaningful ministry to run in, in our church family. We are committed to that, that we want you to have great and meaningful ministry, and uh, if you have more questions, there's a guy on staff. His name is Dan Hutchins. You can email him dan at stonegate He'd love to take them all. <laughs> that joke never gets old. <laughs> okay, so we keep going here. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Verse two, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. That is a junk drawer kind of category. It's saying that there can't be like these major, major character defects there. That This is not a guy that's on the front end of his journey toward Christ's likeness, but he is down the road in that journey. Above reproach, it goes on. The husband of one wife, that he is a one woman man, that he is a model for how to love a woman. He's a, he's a husband of one wife. He's sober minded, self-controlled, and respectable. The way we typically sum those up is by saying this. That when you hear his name associated with eldership or pastoring, your first thought is not, really? That guy? That's, that's not your first thought. Your, your first thought is, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, if I were going to think about who to, to put in that role for our church, that's exactly what I'd be thinking about. You'd have that sort of, of a thought with them. Self-controlled and respectable. Coming down, it says hospitable. Their life is open to people, especially to those who don't know Jesus. They are able to teach. That doesn't mean that they have to be able to stand up and give like a knock-it-out-of-the-park sermon, monologue. It doesn't mean that. It means that they have to be able to open up their Bible, navigate their Bible, and be able to apply the gospel to the wounds of their people. So able to teach. Number, uh, verse three, not a drunkard. Okay, so this is addictions in general. You can be addicted to a million different things, right? Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Okay, so, so to some degree, there is anger that is under control. This guy is not the guy that is getting into a fist fight in the church parking lot after, after church. He's not that guy. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Verse 4, He must manage his own household well with all, all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You know, it's interesting that the qualifications of an elder are tied less to his work in the church— and more to his work in his home. I mean, that, that's interesting. When you think about the last several decades, and maybe even centuries, this has been one of the perennial things that has plagued pastors, is the thought of, I'll take care of God's family and, you know, at the neglect of my own. And listen, can I, can we just call that what it is? That is sin according to the Bible. That's what that is. That, that where you prove your ability to pastor in the church is by how well you do pastor in the home. Verse six, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So eldership is not a place to prove your potential, it's a place for those who have already proved their potential. Verse seven, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Maybe I could just generally sum up these qualifications like this. The qualifications really just describe a good, growing, mature Christian. Now isn't that interesting that Paul's assumption in these qualifications is that really good Christians make really good pastors. And that needs to be heard in a day where a lot of pastors are not very good Christians. Right? His assumption is if you're a good Christian, growing, you love Jesus, you're growing in Jesus, that you're going you're gonna to figure out being a good pastor in the church. That's his assumption here. Okay, so this is, this is what elders are. Now let me address what elders do really briefly. What is it that elders do? I get asked this question periodically. Okay, I understand that, that you, I kind of see what you do on Sunday morning, but what, what exactly is your job? So let me just break it down into three different categories. And we'll use kind of the dominant imagery for pastoring in the Bible is shepherding. So we use that imagery to try to give us handlebars on what it is that pastors or shepherds do. So here's the first thing we could say about it. What do elders do? Uh, number one shepherds lead the sheep. They lead. So if you think about it in the context of a shepherd, they have to figure out where the green grass is and how to get the sheep there. Now, if you just pull that over into the context of the church, shepherds are responsible for for hearing from God, figuring out where it is that we are to go, and then to try to lead in that direction. So this is your... Um, setting the course. This is vision casting, and this is leading people to what it is that God would have us be and do and, and where it is that we are to go. Okay, so it's, it's this leading component. Shepherds have to lead the sheep. Here's the second part. What does an elder do? The second part, you could, or second kind of answer to that is you could say this, that shepherds feed the sheep. So part of the role of a shepherd, if he has sheep, is to make sure they're led to green pastures where they can actually eat. The same thing would be true in in the context of pastoring in a church. The pastors have to consistently break open the Bible to make sure that people are feeding from the good food of the Bible, from the good food of the gospel. This is one of those roles. So this is not just the teaching and preaching component on Sunday morning, but this is the day-in, day-out work of opening up the gospel and applying it to to the daily grind of people's lives. It's that whole role of, of eldering or pastoring. So shepherds feed the sheep. And thirdly, shepherds care for and protect the sheep. So if you're a shepherd and you have a flock of sheep, you just know this, that wolves are not far away ever if you have sheep. That they're always going to be near. And so this is part of the role of a pastor. That he has to protect his flock, his sheep from wolves. And Acts twenty twenty eight makes it really clear that wolves are going to be coming. They're coming for our church. They're coming for any church that has sheep in it. So pastors have to have the discernment to be able to see, is this person a immature sheep or is that person a wolf? If you want just a simple way of, of seeing the difference between the two, wolves don't try to point the attention and get the attention on Jesus. They try to get the attention on themselves. And pastors have to be able to discern immature sheep or wolf. See, when it's an immature sheep, you still feed and you lead and you love them. But when it's a wolf, you shoot them. That's a pretty big difference. And you've got to get that right. But you don't want to be shooting sheep. You want to be shooting wolves. But but you can't feed wolves or they just get stronger and kill your sheep, right? So you have to have the discernment to see that and and discern what is that person. So it's all three of those. Okay, so it's, a pastor is not just one of those, or two of those. It's all three of those. You can be a great preacher and still be a really poor pastor. You can be a great protector, and if that's you, you can be world class protector, care for person. And you may be a great counselor, but you're still not a good pastor. You may be a phenomenal leader. I mean, you could be the CEO of any Fortune 500 company, but if that's all you are, you're still a poor pastor. Pastoring encompasses all three of those. Okay, so with that that said, I want to invite Dave and Kathy to come on up and Travis and Charisse. And uh, while they're making their way up here, let me say just one thing to preface uh, what I'm about to say about them. Is they are not perfect people. And they are not going to be perfect pastors. And I'm going to ask you to be very careful about putting on them the standard of perfection. And I want to encourage you to make sure your standard of perfection is just put on Jesus. If it's put anywhere else, you're going to live disappointed. Now on the other side of that, I would say this about both of these two guys and their family. Is they have demonstrated both faithfulness to God and faithfulness to his church. Both of those two things. So with that said, uh, I want to talk a little bit about both of these uh, two guys. This is Dave Hansen and his wife Kathy down here on the end. And Travis Wyckoff and Sharice. Um, nearest here. So I'm going to start with Dave. And I've known Dave for about a decade now. And I've really known him well for about the last three years. And so his kids grew up in a student ministry that, uh, that I used to help in. And so uh, we go back a while. And over the last three years, Dave has been one of God's greatest graces to me personally. We've become very good friends, and I'm so grateful uh, for Dave's friendship, um, just on a personal level. And there's a couple of things that really stick out to me when I think about Dave. One is, well, he's uniquely gifted, and that, those giftings run in several different ways. But one of those ways is toward wisdom. Um, I told our first service people this, that he, uh, he's got a unique ability. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you hear a, a, a scenario, and it just seems really foggy and really confusing on what do you do now? I mean, that, that was just really complicated, all that got thrown out. Dave's got this unbelievable ability to wipe the fog away and to see really clearly what's next. Just a real unique gift that God gives some people and Dave's got that gift of wisdom. Dave, uh, Dave also has the gift of faith like few people I have ever seen the gift of faith. Uh, Dave is, uh, he is a guy that is compassionate and cares for people like few that I have ever seen. If you check your own heart when you're presented with a need, here's what you'll probably find about your own heart. That your gut reaction is, I'm not going to help him. And then you have to talk yourself into helping him. Dave is one of the few people I know that his gut reaction is, I should help him. And he has to talk himself out of helping if he shouldn't. But that's a unique gift. I pray for more of that just in me personally. But he's definitely got that care and compassion uh, gift to him. So we're talking uniquely gifted guy here in, in a multitude of ways. And on top of all of that, he um, has a remarkable marriage to his wife, Kathy. A, gr- a great marriage. A, a, one of my favorites. And it's a marriage that if we could just say, we want to replicate through our church. We would, I would say, great. I want more of that. And and so we've got a great marriage with he and Kathy, and they've also raised a a great family. So they've got three grown kids, Kristen, Mike, and Steve, and all of them love Jesus today, which is the testimony of really good parenting work along the way as well. So we're talking about a really good guy, uniquely gifted in a multitude of different ways here. And I asked some of his friends um, to to write to me some one-word descriptors on how you would describe Dave. Here's some of what they said. They said it this way Loves Jesus, is family oriented, he's a multiplier, he's honest, he's passionate, he's a risk taker, he walks by faith, he's wise, he speaks the truth in love. We could all use a lot of that around our life. Visionary, he's lovable, he's fun, and he's generous. And and I'm going to add this to that list too. He is both tough and tender. This is one of the things I really love about Dave. He's obviously a pretty big guy, but he's got a really, really big heart as well. I'll just maybe say it this way. If you are to eat lunch with Dave, spend an hour with him, there is a great chance that at some point in the middle of that conversation, he's going to cry. There's a great (laughs) chance that that's going to happen. Okay, now guys, I want you just to hear this. We could all learn a lot from that. We Could all learn a lot from that. And then there's Travis. Uh, the, The Wyckoff started coming to Stonegate when we were three or four months old. So this was right at the very beginning, so almost three and a half years ago now. And over those three and a half years, Travis has become one of my best friends, just a really dear friend of mine, a great friend I am so thankful that God has given me. And over the same course of that three years, I've been able to watch God grow him into a great pastor for our people. It has been a really fun thing for me to be able to watch happen. Uh, Travis came on staff with us uh, about a year and a half ago or so and has done a great job with that, Um, has been a real blessing um, for our church family in regards to that. And Travis is also uniquely gifted. Um, Some of his giftings run in the relational kind of world. He's uniquely gifted relationally. Uh, he is very good at sitting across from people, and he's very approachable. He's very humble in that setting. He, he's uniquely gifted that way. One of the ways I would describe it is like this. He loves people, and then this is the rare thing. He actually enjoys being around people. You know, I mean, he's like one of those guys that actually enjoys that. That's kind of a rare find. So he's that. He's humble. He's authentic. He's authentic. He's a, kind of a what-you-see-is-what-you-get sort of a guy. And, and I would say this about Travis. One of the defining things of his life is he has given his life to the pursuit of making disciples, of which many of you have been the recipient of through your time at Stonegate. And so on top of all that, uh, Travis is a, a good family man. He has a good marriage. He's another marriage with he and Sharice that we would say we would want replicated throughout our church. And they're also doing a great job of raising uh, their family of Trevor and Cooper and Ellie. They're doing a wonderful job in, in the parenting arena. And this is the most important thing I would say about both of these two guys is that they both are acutely aware of their sinfulness. And that drives them to know this. They are constantly dependent upon the amazing grace of God. That They, they feel a constant need for the gospel like today. I asked a few people to give some words about Travis that would describe him. Here are some of the words they put on there. Love Jesus. Loves his family. Cherise said this about him. An amazing husband and father. That's a good thing for a wife to say about her husband. Disciple maker. A good friend. Respectable. Approachable. Um, authentic. Humble. Quick-witted. Forgiving. Fun. And this one comes straight from your friend Valentine. Levi's loving. <laughs> I don't know how many of y'all know Travis well, but if you know him well, you know that he will not put a pair of jeans on unless it has Levi's <laughs> written on it somewhere. <laughs> and I also want to take a, a chance to, uh, to talk to both Charisse and uh, Kathy just for a second. As good as your two husbands are, and I think a lot of them, I think they have found even better wives. I think they have two really godly ladies that love them. And I just want you to know this from my perspective and on behalf of our church. We are so thankful for not only the way you serve in the context of your family and and your husband and your marriage, but the way you serve our church. We are so grateful for you. So thanks for being you. So we're going to pray over these two guys. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And I want to read a passage that I think would would maybe outline things I think would be good for you to pray when you think about these two men. The passage is Acts 20:28. 20, it says this: Pay careful attention to yourselves. This is Paul talking to the elders in Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Let's pray together. So God, we first want to say thank you for your grace toward us that's expressed in you making and selecting and equipping and doing this pastoring thing in both Dave and Travis. God, we want to celebrate the grace that's expressed in their marriages and in their family. And God, we know that they're not going to be perfect people. They're not going to be perfect pastors. They're not going to have perfect families. But we pray they would always be repenting people. And God, we pray with Paul that they would keep a close watch on themselves, on how their heart is prone to wonder, on the sin that lies in them, on the plots and ploys of Satan against them. They would keep careful watch over their heart. And God, I pray that you would grace them with the ability to keep careful watch over our church family, over the flock that you've entrusted to them. So God, I pray that they would take that with a sacred seriousness. And God, that there would be incredibly rich fruit produced in their labor of caring for the flock. And God, I also pray that you would keep them humble, that there would be a recognition of elders and pastors are made by God, not in any merit of their own. So just as much as they would realize that they are under shepherds of you for the church, they would also realize that they are sheep who need shepherding. And God, I pray that they would always have deep in their heart a burning love for Jesus and a great appreciation of your grace expressed to them in Jesus. That they would know that they're a part of the church that has been obtained and bought by the blood of Jesus. And so God, I pray for that for both of these two men that the gospel would be so in them that it couldn't help but come out of them. So God, we pray for blessing, for favor, for wisdom, for discernment, for everything they need to do this job well. It's in your good name that we pray, amen. So I've got two gifts for you. And you get to keep them this time. They had to give them back to me after I gave them to them in the first service. (laughs) And uh, for Dave, Travis, both of your families, I want you to know how much we appreciate you and how much I look forward to being around the table with you. Mm -hmm. Let's give them a hand. Thank you, guys. Okay, now we are turning the attention to pastoring in the home It is Father's Day. We are going to talk to some fathers in the room. Let me preface it by saying uh, uh, a couple things. One, to our ladies in the room. Mornings like this where we specifically address fathers. And you're going to feel this around our church, especially if you're new here, that we emphasize and just press on our guys often to step into the shoes that God has given them. So so we want to create a culture that presses our guys toward that. Now, I want to make this clear. That's not to the neglect of our ladies. We actually feel like that's one of the best ways we can serve our ladies. Listen, no no woman dreams about having a deadbeat husband. Nobody does that. But families are full of them. And we want to make sure our culture around our church doesn't produce that but instead produces godly men who are feeling the responsibility that God has given them for their life, right? So so to our ladies, we want mornings like this to be an expression of love for you. And secondly, I want to talk just real briefly to our single moms in the room and specifically to those who have kids in the home. You have the toughest job on the planet. There is no tougher job than what you have. You're called to be both mom and dad, which is virtually impossible for your family. Which is, I mean, just extremely, extremely difficult. And I am really sensitive to a morning like this when we're talking about what fathers should be in the home. That I don't want you to feel discouraged realizing that I don't have that in the home. And and on the flip side of that, I I want to, in a a weird way, my hope is that this morning is actually an encouragement for you. The next best thing to having a godly man in your home to help you raise your kids, the next best thing to that is to be in a church full of godly men who can help you raise your kids. And mornings like this are an attempt for us to create that sort of an environment where you have a church family full of godly men to help you. Okay, so with that said, men, uh, let's do this. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. It's going to be on the screen for you. First four verses, Ephesians 6 says this. Children, obey your parents. This will also be on the screen. So if you need it up there, you can, you can find it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Today is Father's Day and if you're a son or a daughter in the room, good for you to hear this. The number one way that uh, you can give, the number one gift you can give to your father on a day like this is for you to honor him. Number one, number one thing you can do for your mom and dad for that matter. But number one thing today that you could do is to honor him. And listen, it doesn't say anything about if he deserves it or not in that passage, right? And and so that you could give honor. You could figure out what honor looks like in your situation. And then verse four, Paul is about to emphasize the importance of fathers. Now let me just clarify, just if if we were going to uh, talk about the importance and emphasize the importance of vitamin E— It's not saying vitamin C is unimportant. So we're about to emphasize fathers, and it's not saying mothers in any way, shape, or form are unimportant. Mothers have a huge role to play in raising kids. But this morning, this passage is emphasizing the role fathers play. He says, verse 4, Fathers, like wake up here, it's a splash of cold water in the face. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If I were going to summarize, first thing I would do this passage, summarize what Paul is saying here is I would say it this way. That Paul is saying this, dads, hear this, dads, you are pastors. If you're a dad in the room, God has entrusted to you a small church called the family. And he has assigned that small church a pastor. Dad, you need to look in the mirror and see yourself and know you're the pastor of that small little church. This is the role God has given you to play. Fathers, this is your deal. God has given you the role of pastoring. Now dads, the next thing I'm about to say is so critical that you understand this next thing. So I want you to follow with me here. Your voice in your home is irreplaceable. You cannot replace the voice of a father in a home. So so I'm I'm about to quote a long excerpt from a guy named Doug Wilson in a book called Father Hunger. Listen to what he says here. Be on the screen. He says, Most boys grow up needing to be taught their strength as when they are horsing around with their younger siblings. They are bigger and stronger and much more influential, let us say, than they think they are. So we have a five-year-old and a two-year-old in our home. We have to constantly remind our five-year-old that if you shove your two-year-old, bad things are going to happen to her because you're a lot stronger. Like we have to actually teach her that, that she's stronger than she thinks she is, that she's more influential than she thinks she is. Okay, so let's go on here. But the need for teaching this lesson doesn't disappear when boys get past the horsing around stage. In their families, men are much more important much more crucial and much more influential than they believe themselves to be. It is the easiest thing in the world for a man to grow up, get married, have kids, and still think of himself the way he did when he was a boy. See what he's saying, guys? That it's really easy for you to get a wife, get some kids run around your house, and to have no idea how influential you are in their life. It's really easy for you to, to think this. I'm just another voice in their life. I, I'm just kind of another person in the house. You are not another person. You're not that. You, God has bestowed upon you and given you a voice that cannot be replaced in your son's and daughter's life. It's that influential, your voice in their life. Okay, he goes on to say this. Words of reassurance offered or withheld... Are monumental in a child's growth. Words of encouragement or exhortation or patient teaching are the same. When a child has grown up under the dev- devastation of unremitting harshness or the devastation of neglect, the one thing a father may not say is that it was not a big deal. Of course it was a big deal. By the grace of God, if your dad in the room, by the grace of God, your sons and daughters are going to grow up and for the rest of their life, repeat the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember the first two words of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. Every time they say those words to God, they are going to feel something deep down in their bones. Now let this sober you dads. What they feel is what you put there. What they feel in that moment of saying, our father, God, what they feel deep in their bones in that moment is what was put there by their father. Let me say this another way. If you've got sons and daughters before, and you're a dad, before they ever know God as their father, they are going to know you as their father. And what they know of you as their father— is going to be the primary shaper for what they know of God as Father, for how they see God as Father. Are we seeing that? Before our kids know God as Father, they're going to know you. You you go by the same name. Your Father, God as Father. Before they know God as Father, they're going to know you as Father. And what they know and see of you as Father is going to shape like nothing else on the planet what they think of God as Father. And just let that sober us, right? This is the sort of influential place a father has in his son's life, in his daughter's life. Doug Wilson goes on to say this. Fathers are speaking about God the Father constantly. They do not have the option of shutting up. Are you seeing that? Every father in the room. You don't have the option of turning off speaking about God as Father. That doesn't exist. That option is not there for any of us. We're always telling our kids something about God the Father. He goes on to say this. What dads or fathers, what they are saying may be true or false, but they are not in a position where they can refuse to say anything. A father who just sits and stares, a father who is down at the office all the time, a father who deserts the family, all of them are speaking. Every one of them is saying something all of the time. A father who teaches his son to swing a bat. A father who listens to his daughter explain why Peter Rabbit should have obeyed. A father who kisses their mom on the lips. A father who reads for hours to the family in the evening. All of them are speaking too. And really, this is the the pressing question. The question for our dads is, what are you speaking You can't turn the voice off. It's influential and it's loud and it's being heard. The question is, what are you saying? What are your kids picking up from your fatherhood about God's fatherhood? That's the question. So this is the first thing we see here, that Paul is saying this, that dads are pastors. You're not just—if you're a dad, you're not just a dad. You are pastor dad. Here's the second thing we see here. That pastor dads disciple their children. The pastor dads disciple their children. This is what it means to bring up your kids. That dads see as one of their main prerogatives of life, one of their main ambitions of life is investing their life into their sons and daughters, discipling them holistically, spiritually, physically, emotionally, in every way bringing them up into mature manhood, mature womanhood. This is like dad's, God's blessing to you. What he's given you to do, to bring your kids up. And let me just clarify again, it's not his his sole responsibility. It's just his primary responsibility. So this is, you know, when I think about my house, my wife plays an instrumental role in that. It's huge. But but Paul, again, is pressing on dads. He's saying this, dads, are you seeing this? That you need to give your life to discipling your kids, to, to bringing them up. And then he gives us two handlebars on what it means to disciple your kids. Like, how is that done? He gives us two handlebars for that. And let me just point two of them out here. Number one, he says this. Way number one, he says it's through discipline. Do you see that in verse four? Through, with discipline. Think with me for just a second here. Imagine this. What if, what if babies came out of the womb full grown? Men, women. Now that is like weird on multiple levels, right? But, but just think about that with me for a second. What if that happened? you know what? They would be monsters. That's what they would be. See, little babies are, they have hearts that are completely bent in upon themselves. You just, if you're a mom or dad, you know how this has played out. Your kid's four months old. He's hungry. It's 3 a.m. What does he do? He cries until someone gets up to feed him. It doesn't matter what else is going on, what else is happening in the house. He cries until something happens. Someone gets up, sticks a bottle into his mouth where all he has to do is suck on it to eat. That's what he does. With total disregard to everyone and everything else. See, a baby's heart is totally bent in on themselves. Now listen to this, parents, dads. The only way a kid gets out of that is with a mom and a dad who loves them enough to discipline them. This is why Proverbs says you have to train them up. Discipline is a form of discipleship. And if you say no to disciplining your kids, you are also saying no to discipling your kids. The, The part of discipleship is discipline. And this is why it's so important. Your kids learn how to obey and follow God by learning how to obey and follow you as a dad in their home. As a mom in the home. Your your, your kids learn down the road what it looks like to follow God by first following you. So there's a lot at stake here. Like you teaching your kids to immediately and joyfully obey is setting them up down the road to immediately and joyfully obey God. See, that's how that links together. So this is not a sermon on like the methods of discipline. You need to figure it out. I'll say that. You need to get it figured out. You need to do some thinking on that and and know what you're after when it comes to discipline. So it's not a sermon on the methods, but it's just trying to say this. You need to figure it out and you need to start that stuff early. I just dare you to try to spank your 20-year-old. And after it breaks his hand, he's going to laugh at you, right? I mean, after it breaks your hand, he's going to laugh at you. I mean, it just doesn't go well. You have to start that stuff early. And listen, you have to be persistent with that. Like you have to stay constant and on top of that. So he says, way number one that you grow a kid up or you disciple your kids is through discipline. And this is the second thing he says. Way number two is with instruction. So if discipline is mainly reactive, you're responding to behavior instruction is mainly proactive. It's proactively passing along a vision for God and a mission for your sons' and daughters' lives. This is the proactive part, instruction. And the best place I know to see how this plays out is Deuteronomy 6. You can turn there or it's going to be up on the screen for you. Deuteronomy 6. I want to read through this with you. So when we say instruction, we are talking about the proactive instilling and teaching your kids what they need to know. So with instruction, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And these that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, guys, notice verse 4 and 5. The writer of Deuteronomy is saying this, the Lord is one, and here is the main thing fathers need to know. The, the Lord is one, and they need to love that Lord who is one with all of their soul, mind, and strength. They, they actually have to love that, that God. So, so like part of parenting is passing something along. But you can't pass something along that you don't possess, right? Right? So he's saying this, the first thing a parent needs, a dad needs, is a burning love for Jesus in their heart. Like a burning love, like you can't contain sort of a love. That's the primary thing that a dad needs, is to actually love Jesus like that. And dads, I want to give you this warning shot. If you are a person who is constantly teaching your kids about God But it is plain in your life that you have no burning love for God in your heart, it's likely you're going to produce kids who can't stand God. If you're the person that teaches your kids all about God, and it's evident that you have no burning love for God in your heart, it's likely that you're going to produce kids who can't stand God in the end. So, Dad, I want to ask you just a really straightforward question Is there a burning love for God buried in your bones? And listen, if there's not, it's okay this morning to say there's not right now. This would be a great morning to repent of that, to get on your face before God, and to plead with God to give you that. So then he goes on, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. So possessing a burning love for God is where it starts, but it's not where it stops. What you possess, he's saying here, you actually have to pass along intentionally. This is like intentional, formal, I'm going to pass this along. That sort of formality and intentionality to it. And let me just point this out. Something he doesn't say in this text. He doesn't say... And your pastor or your church leader or your Sunday school teacher or the kid that's teaching or the person that's teaching your kids in, you know, in, in, in the service over there, he, it's not saying that they're responsible for that. It's saying, dads, moms, you're responsible for that. That this is what God has put in your life. It's the privilege and the blessing God has given you to do. That you're the one that God has called to be the primary disciples of your kids. And listen, if you're not intentionally working at discipling your kids, here is what you are saying unintentionally. It is someone else's job to do that. And it's not someone else's job. It is your job to do that. Your job to be the intentional person in their life who is growing them up to know Jesus. Maybe I could ask it this way. Dads, think about this question. If we took away every other influence from your kids' life, every other influence— Sunday school stuff, church stuff, every other influence. And they were depending on just your life and lips, what they know about God, what they know about the gospel, what they know about the reason that they exist. How well would your kids be equipped for life? What would your kids know if it was just your life and lips? Now here's the question that I'm praying, or here's the answer I'm praying that more and more our men could be able to answer with. Everything they need. Everything they need. My life and lips, they they would have everything they need. So this is what we're talking about, that formal instruction. And guys, I I, want to just clue you into this too. We want to be great partners with you in in the task of, of your primary task of discipling your children. We want to be great partners. But can I just say this? If you're not intentionally doing this in the home, it doesn't matter how well we partner with you. Your kids are likely not going to be positioned well to hear from God. And on the flip side of that, if you're doing a great job at this in the home, we want to do a great job— let me say that clearly, but at the end of the day, if you're doing that well in your home, it doesn't matter if we do or don't do a great job. Your kids are going to be positioned well to hear from Jesus. And l- let me just make sure that the feel of this, the flavor of this is not, you've got to get in there and disciple them. That's not the flavor. Here's the flavor. You get to do that. Like, like God has looked at fathers and he said, hey guys, I'm giving you this Unbelievable opportunity. Unbelievable opportunity. Got little kids running around. Unbelievable opportunity to invest your life into those babies, to those little kids, to those grown kids. Unbelievable opportunity. Dads, can I just make... Your legacy, the eternal difference that you make with your life, maybe I could say it this way. The most meaningful thing that almost all of us will do for the kingdom of God within our little short span of life the most meaningful thing is gonna be what you do in your family. What you do there. Raising little boys and girls who grow up to have little boys and girls who love Jesus, who grow up to have little boys and girls who love Jesus. Doing that is the most influential thing you're gonna do for the kingdom of God. And and, and God's saying, I'm giving you that. That I, I am giving you that opportunity. It goes on here. And this is the informal side of it. So we just have the formal side. You teach them diligently. And here's the informal side. And you shall talk of them when you sit at the house or sit in the house. I'll just kind of walk you through what this looks like for us. That kind of looks to me like dinner table when you're sitting in the house. And I'll just say what we do for dinner. Um, when we eat dinner together, our kids are five and under. When we eat dinner together, we, uh, we want to teach them about some attributes of God their Father. We want to make sure they know that. So our prayer highlights four attributes of God. That God is big, that God is strong, that God's good, that God's love. And, and then we, we, you know, we pray that every time. They, they either sing it or they say it. And then all of our kids kind of end with this weird amen that's really high-pitched. And so this is kind of our normal routine of us trying to teach them those attributes. And we also uh, do some questions and answers from the New City Catechism. If you've never heard of a catechism and you've never heard of New City Catechism, Google all three of those words. Take a look at it. It's free. You, you should be doing that. And it, it would be great for the moms and dads in homes. It would be great for you as well. Like questions like, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is God? How many persons are there in God? It gives you good, meaty answers to that that you probably don't know. You probably assume you know better than you do. Right, so we're just trying to be really intentional about instilling into them these things around the dinner table. It goes on here. And when you walk by the way, I would call that just normal life happening. That's when you're in the car driving. That's when you're at the baseball field. That's when you're fishing. That's when you're just doing life. That is when your little girl does what my little five-year-old girl did a couple of weeks ago and cuts her hair to the scalp. I'm talking about... She went from hair like past her shoulders to a burr haircut. And it's been so interesting to watch how deep insecurity is in the heart of a five-year-old. And so I've been able to pull her up in my lap and remind her, your daddy loves you with or without hair. "Your, Your daddy loves you. Your daddy thinks you're beautiful with or without hair. And it's also been a really good way for me to empathize with her. That you know what? Sometimes daddy cares way too much about what people think too. And I need God to help me with that just like you need God to help you with that, right? Just as you're going, connecting the good news of the gospel into the life of your kids. He goes on here, and when you lie down, that kind of sounds like nighttime to me. So at nighttime, we do the Jesus Storybook Bible where it's giving the major Bible stories and it's pointing all of those stories to the work of Jesus. And if you don't have that in your home, you should get that and start reading that ASAP. You can get it on the resource table. It would be a really good devotion for a lot of our adults to do together. Like if you're married, a great devotion for you to do with your husband or wife would be that. And then when we go to bed, I put my hand on both, uh, all of my kids, put my hand on their head and I pray for them. And I'm just trying to seed into them Things that I'm hopeful for that God will do in their life. Trying to pray big things for them. Trying to pray that one day God would save them. They would come to know Jesus and love Jesus and live their life for Jesus. But I try to seed in little ideas. So I look at Caleb, he's 3 year olds, and I'll say something like this. Caleb, you want to be a church planner someday? Let's pray for it. I'll look at Hannah and I'll say, uh, you want to marry a really godly man someday? Man, I hope you do. Let's pray for it. And she normally gives the, oh, that's sick. And it is right now, it is right now too, but it won't be in a few years, right? So I'm just trying to seed into her big hopes that I have for their life. And then it says this, and when you rise. So it's not rocket science, it's just saying in the day in, day out conversations around your home, that that the men in the home have created an atmosphere where talk about God, talk about the gospel is normal and commonplace. That's just the normal thing our family does. This is what he's talking about. And then in verse 8 and 9, he says this, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. And if verse 4 and 5 is talking about this internal burning love for Jesus that's buried in your bones, verses 8 and 9 are talking about those things being expressed in your life. That that, that burning love for Jesus is actually being seen in your life. That's important idea here. What your kids see in you is what they'll one day be. What your kids see, they'll one day be. 99% of discipleship is by imitation, not by you transferring information to them. It's about what they see in you. So like your sons in your house should be looking at their dad thinking this, that is how a man loves a woman right there. That's how it's done. That's how a man deals with finances. That's a man that deals with generosity. That's how man does every bit of that. It, dads, if you have daughters in your home, they should be looking at you and they should be thinking this. That is the sort of man I want to marry someday, right there. That, that is the sort of person that when I say yes, I should be saying yes to. A guy that cares for my mom like that. See, it's by imitation. What they see is what they're going to be. And dads, we have been given this mandate by God to make sure that we're displaying before our kids what it means to love Jesus and to walk with Jesus. Jonathan Edwards is one of my favorite pastors. A couple of centuries ago, he was a pastor in the Northeast. He's one of the guys that ushered in the great awakenings up in the Northeast. And one of the reasons that I love Jonathan Edwards is because his He not only excelled in a public ministry life, but he also excelled in his private family life. And dads, I want to read an excerpt from one of his daughters and what she wrote to her dad. Okay, just about her dad here. I mean, I'm praying that daughters around here will be able to write something similar about a lot of dads around here. Just listen to this. Esther Edwards, what she wrote about her father. Last Eve... I had some free discourse with my father on the great things that concern my best interest. I opened my difficulties to him, my dad, very freely, and he freely advised and directed. Now, wouldn't that be something if daughters in all of our homes, sons in all of our homes, felt like they could freely open up their deepest struggles and difficulties to get help from their father? Not by going to a church, not by going to someone else, but to to the dad for that. The conversation, and listen to the fruit of that conversation. The conversation has removed some distressing doubts that discouraged me much in my Christian warfare. He gave me some excellent directions to be observed in secret that tend to keep my soul near to God as well as others to be observed in a more public way. That a a son or daughter could go to their dad with difficulty and know and trust that their dad knows Jesus, knows life, and know how the two things fit together. So that when they go to their dad, they can trust that they are going to get counsel that will actually help them private and public, that would be fruitful and good for their soul. And then listen to the last couple of phrases that she says. What a mercy that I have such a father. What a mercy that I have such a father, such a guide. Can I just tell you what I hope God will do around here is allow a lot of boys and girls to grow up in homes where one day when they look back over it, They could say this about their dad. Oh, what a mercy that God gave me that man. What a mercy. What a mercy. And let me finish by encouraging with this. At the end of the day, being a dad and a pastor is a gospel-dependent venture. It is dependent upon the good news of Jesus Dad, has got to tell you the number one thing. Your primary problem when it comes to parenting is not a technique, although you may need to learn better technique. But it's not—your primary problem isn't a technique. Your primary problem is the sin in your heart. That's the primary problem. And the only solution for that sin problem is a Savior named Jesus. Like, your only solution to that sin problem that's buried in us, the only solution to that is a burning love for Jesus— that alone can uproot that sin in you. It's just that that can do it. That's sort of a burning love for Jesus. And let me just make sure that our guys aren't on the brink of despair. Because that's a hard thing, isn't it? You know, it's been my, um, it's been my experience that most dads, when they look at their kids and the kids turn out well, they t- take way too much credit for that. And when the, the kids don't turn out very well, they take way too much blame for that. And so that's, if your kids have turned out well, just know this, that's the grace of God much more than it is you. That's, that's despite your failures, not because, not because of your successes. And for those who your kids are struggling right now, or you're looking at your life and you're seeing all of your past parenting blunders and sin, can I just remind you of this? The gospel keeps us from despair. Like the, the gospel is saying to us right now that you can stand before God irregardless of how well or how well you haven't parented. You can stand before God because of what Jesus has done for you. See, the gospel allows us in a moment like this not to be crushed by guilt. It allows us to be able to do this, to own our sin. Wherever our past sin is, wherever our parenting blunders are, the gospel allows us to own our sin without being crushed by our sin. And the gospel empowers us to turn from our sin and to Jesus, right? And so for those dads who feel crushed this morning, they look back over their life and see so many missed opportunities. Here's the good news of the gospel. God doesn't pick us up where we should have been, but where we are now. And there's no day like today to start, amen? So the same gospel that pardons our sin, all of our past parenting sin, is the same grace from God that empowers new life, new living, you being a great father today. Amen. I pray that it will happen for you. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.